0: Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the eighth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we will be looking together this morning at verses 14 through 25? That is Acts chapter 8, 14 through 25, and you can find that passage either on page 1078 in your Pew Bibles or beginning there on the bottom of page 44 in your Acts journals, and I would remind you. Uh, we still have some copies available of uh, just the book of Acts with, with uh, room to take notes available on the fellowship hall table. Please feel free to take one if you have not uh, received one already. And While you're making your way to our passage this morning, I will remind you of where we are in our look together at the book of Acts. Last week, you will remember, we worked our way through verses 9 through 13 of this 8th chapter. And I pointed out to you that it began with one of those words that as we read the Bible should probably catch our attention. In this case, it was the word, but. It implies that whatever has just been stated, there is still something else. And in the case of this text, we looked at what had been stated already. Philip had fled the persecution in Jerusalem and had ended up in Samaria. And we find Philip there not really trying to avoid notice. He was not walking with his eyes to the ground or his hat pulled low over his eyes. He was not avoiding eye contact or conversation with strangers. He was in no way hiding. No, beloved, he was in the streets of the city doing exactly what he had been doing in Jerusalem. He was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in power. He was healing the sick and the weak. He was casting out demons. He was telling the lame to rise up and walk. If anything, he really was going out of his way, it would appear to be seen, to be noticed. This whole thing was undoubtedly a spectacle as it unfolded in this Samaritan city just as it had been in Jerusalem. And the people were responding sort of en masse to his preaching. That is what was clearly spoken of first. Then in verse 14, we had this statement beginning with the word but. But Philip was not the only one there in the city going after the hearts and the minds of the people. There was another. This man that we were introduced to was Simon the sorcerer. And Luke told us that Simon had previously practiced his sorcery in the city and that he had astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he himself was somebody great indeed. And the people not only took heed of Simon's power and his claims to that power. But from the least of them to the greatest of them, Luke tells us, they all thought that he might even be a bit more than just a great somebody. And they declared that Simon was in fact the great power of God. They said, this man is the great power of God. I mentioned to you last week that I believe that Simon may have been selling himself as the Messiah that the Samaritan people were waiting for. We went on last week to look at three primary things there in that narrative that we must see. First, I told you that we must see here that this is far more than just a disagreement between two cordial gentlemen who are willing to hear one another out regarding spiritual matters. No, this is not that. This is not a developing, friendly debate. This is a clash between kingdoms. Simon was all about representing the kingdom of Simon for the benefit of Simon. He was a shameless self-promoter, and we saw it all over that text last week. The kingdom of self is really the kingdom of Satan. One wants to be in the place of God before the people, and Simon gets near that position through his own powerful show of magic. Philip, on the other hand, has nothing to say about himself at all, and he seems that he cannot stop talking about Jesus Christ and his gospel. He points the people not to the fear that they ought to be showing him, but to the salvation that Jesus came to give to them. He points them to the kingdom of God. And we notice that the people heeded the words of Simon. That is, they listened to him. They paid attention to him. They perhaps even feared him a bit. But Luke says that they believed Philip. They took Philip's words as the truth and they ran to Jesus. Two different messages from two very different kingdoms producing two very different results. So we see two kingdoms here standing completely in opposition to one another, which led us to the second point. We saw very clearly here that this battle belongs to the Lord. It belongs to King Jesus. In fact, I pointed out to you that the thing about this battle that really sort of stands out here is that in truth, there really is no battle at all, is there? The kingdom of God really is unrivaled by any other kingdom. Nothing can stand in the way of the kingdom of God. Nothing can slow God's progress of his kingdom. Nothing can sort of just come in and thwart the perfect plan of God. The battle belongs to the Lord. Beloved, during this time of tension that we live in between the already that has happened and the not yet that is still to come, Satan, though certainly a defeated foe, is not just standing by idols. He knows that ultimately he's defeated. But he now lives during this time between the first and second comings of Christ. He lives to frustrate those who are a part of the victorious and triumphant church of Jesus Christ. And so here in Samaria, Simon is selling the people a false hope that in fact is no hope at all. And God sends his messenger, Philip. By way of his providential flight from the persecution in Jerusalem. And he preaches on the streets of Samaria the message of the kingdom. The gospel. And people are saved. They run to Jesus. And Luke tells us there's great joy in the city. There was no battle. Hearing the truth, by the grace of God, the people recognize it for what it is. And they rightly run to Jesus for salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. So Philip must show them Jesus. And he does. And the battle ends before it begins. The Samaritans did not need another show of man-centered power or magic. They were not in need of of -of sleight-of-hand magic shows. They needed the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they fled to Him. And beloved, they worshipped. They took the sign of God's covenant people. They were baptized. They stood in awe of Almighty God and His wonderful grace in the gospel. And they rejoiced. Beloved, I want to ask you this morning. Does it excite you to hear it? To consider it? You understand the question. I'm asking whether or not this is our response to the amazing grace of God offered to us in this same gospel. Is this what makes you want to get out of bed on a morning like this, a dreary morning, and get here to worship with the people of God? Does the truth of the gospel leave you standing in awe of God? Which was the third point we looked at last week. There are certainly two kinds of awe manifested here in this text. One is the awe of Simon's shows of power. But we saw rather quickly it really is less than awe, isn't it? The other is the awe that the people show Almighty God in their response to the gospel. Simon's power may have changed the way that the people looked at Simon. Like I said, they may have feared him enough to pay attention when he was talking. But their response to the gospel that Philip preached in power was very different. It had nothing to do with their response towards Philip, but their response toward the God of grace that he proclaimed before them. They worshipped. They gladly took upon themselves the sign of the covenant, and Luke says they rejoiced. Not because they witnessed another show of power. But because they saw in Jesus Christ the true answer to their greatest need. Jesus would give them his righteousness. He would take their sin, all of it, and give to them in exchange the spotless righteousness of the Son of God. And So it's safe to say they worshipped. As they had never worshiped before. They stood in awe of him and his grace. Do we? Do you? I mentioned to you last week that I fear far too much of what calls itself Christianity today, approaches Almighty God, much like the people here approached Simon. They respected him, they listened. Perhaps even feared him a bit. Is that the way we approach the king of heaven and earth? Of course not. Beloved, when we see this king, we weep with joy. And we worship. We celebrate his grace to sinners like us. Do you worship him in this way? Well, this morning in the text that's before us, we're going to look a little bit more closely at this situation going on in Samaria and the wonders of God's grace. So I'd like you to follow along with me in your Bibles as I read from the Holy Word of God, again, Acts chapter 8, picking up with verse 14 and reading through verse 25. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God... They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness. And pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again this morning, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to come before your word. We pray that your spirit would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things in this life that distract us. But this morning, Father, may we give our attention to your word so that hearing it and seeing it through the power of your spirit, we may be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may recognize this passage here in Acts. Historically, this text has been one wrought with difficulty for the church of Jesus Christ. On the surface, according to many, it's one of those places in sacred scripture that seems to raise more questions than it actually answers. For example... Why did the apostles feel it necessary to go to Samaria to investigate this turn of events that seemed to spring up as a result of Philip's preaching? Or why did the Samaritans not receive the Holy Spirit? Was there in fact perhaps something deficient in them or in the preaching of Philip That led to this confusion of the Spirit not being poured out upon what appear to be regenerate folks. I want to tell you this is a passage that many Pentecostals will use to point to the need of a second blessing of the Spirit after one is led to faith. It raises questions to be sure. What about Simon? Why does Luke go back to Simon? Is Simon saved? Does he come to faith sometime after this rebuke? Or is this perhaps Simon being exposed as a fraud? It would appear on the surface that it raises more and more and more questions. However, beloved, I do firmly believe that these are perhaps the wrong questions. And that they flow out of one's losing sight of what Luke is doing here in the book of Acts. This is not just a straightforward historical narrative like what we would find in a history book in school. This is the record of the reign of the risen king. This is a place that one can come to a again and again, to gain an understanding of God's bigger picture in the history of redemption. And we simply cannot come to a narrative like this one and just set that truth aside. When we view it through the proper lens, the revelation of God's redemptive plan in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see what's going on here much more clearly. So this morning, I want to do just that. And in doing so, I'd like to point out to you three things that I think we will see here clearly as we approach this text in light of what it tells us of redemptive history. First, I think we'll see that the message of the kingdom brings down walls. It crushes those things that divide. Second, we'll look at necessary walls that stay in place. In fact, are even bolstered by the gospel. And then finally, we will look at the fact that the kingdom of God continues to march on towards glory. So first, a wall comes down. This is an important fact for us to see if we are to interpret this passage with the least amount of confusion. And it will leave us asking the right questions. This visit that comes about from the apostles in Jerusalem, namely from Peter and John, is not a negative visit in any way, shape, or form. They're not making their way towards Samaria to make themselves certain of Philip's orthodoxy or of his preaching skills. They're not going because they are, in fact, somehow suspicious of the Samaritans' Considering the history of dislike, even outright hatred between the people in Jerusalem and the people in Samaria. That's not what any of this is about. If it were, I think Luke would have been much clearer about that here. So then we have to ask the question, the right question. What is this visit about? Well, I would encourage you to remember that this book... The book of Acts is all about redemptive history. Do you remember how it started? It started with the ascension. But what happened before Jesus ascended? We were told there that he spent time with his followers, teaching them all about God's redemptive plan throughout history. Jesus showed himself to them in the law and the prophets. And he taught them how all things were really about himself. And beloved, I remind you of that because it matters here. We can clear up some confusion here. The apostles are making their way towards Samaria because something magnificent, something truly historic is about to take place. Do you see it this morning? For whatever reason, only God knows, the Spirit was not poured out immediately upon these new converts. But I would remind you that we've seen this kind of thing before, haven't we? The original followers of Jesus before His ascension were told that upon His ascension, they were to go to Jerusalem and wait for what? The gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was going to send to them. And of course... On the day of Pentecost, we saw that prophecy come to fruition. The Spirit was poured out upon them, and everyone heard the glories of the gospel proclaimed in their own native tongue, as flames of fire settled above their heads. It was the official start of the Christian church. It was the fulfilling of not just the prophetic promises of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we looked all the way back to the prophecy of Joel. And we saw his prophecy fulfilled that day as well. So here now, we have Peter and John making their way towards Samaria for an historic event that was about to take place. There is tension. You understand, a wall was about to come tumbling down in more ways than one. So Peter and John arrived and they do what they should do. They pray for the Samaritans that God would in fact pour out his spirit upon them. And Luke tells us they then laid their hands on them and that the Samaritans received the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a moment. Can you imagine? This is a moment that I want to tell you this morning has been anticipated since the days of the garden and the curse. This is the further crushing of the head of the serpent. This is the moment. This moment is there in the promise to Abraham that through him and his seed, the nations would be blessed. Do you understand? This is the blessing of salvation through the gospel going to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the world. They are being being grafted into the people of God. They receive the very same spirit as their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem did. And this is not being done somehow off in a corner. The apostles are represented there. Peter and John are there laying hands upon the people, giving their approval to them, being one people with not just any Gentiles, but the Samaritans. Beloved, do you see the grace of Almighty God in this? Do you understand why I would say the gospel is tearing the walls down? Walls between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Walls between the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and the Samaritan people. This moment is what Paul describes at the end of Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus... For as many of you for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus And if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise you understand this day was a celebration in Samaria and Jerusalem alike Peter and John are there and they are welcoming in the Samaritans as their brothers and sisters in Christ what a beautiful picture of real Christian unity a picture beloved that I hope that we heed because I think we're living in a time where real unity is getting harder and harder to find. And I want to be clear here before I put the finger, point the finger at good reform folks like us for a minute. There certainly are many things that separate us from others in the Christian church that I would say are necessary barriers to fellowship. However, I think that they are fewer than we probably realize. We cannot look the other way when Jesus Christ is blasphemed. We cannot support a form of the gospel that is much less than the gospel and becomes yet another distraction to the gospel. But in the reformed world, we often seek to separate from one another over so much less. We disagree on eschatology on the last things, and we begin to point out the errors of those who are in absolute agreement with us about the gospel. We disagree about form and manner in worship, we write one another off as heretics. I'm not going to go on here, but I will say that I could go on much, much further, and that's just on the theological side. We get more ridiculous than that. I've watched us, good reformed folk, bite and devour one another over the handling of things like COVID. We will attack one another over the way we dress, the way we speak, the people we associate with, even the silly diet that we follow. There is no limit to the madness, is there? Outside of unity in Christ? But the gospel is preached on the streets of Samaria and the the, the apostles themselves show up for this historic moment and they start kicking down foolish walls erected by men. And they say, run to Jesus. The Spirit is given to the Gentiles in full sight and acceptance of the representatives from Jerusalem for a reason. Now, perhaps you're saying to yourself, Steve, I I don't know. (laughs) Sounds good, Steve, but how do we know that's why the apostles are there? How do you know they were not there to just sort of pump the brakes a little bit about all these goings on in, in Samaria? Well, look at what the apostles did. We're going to come back to Simon in a minute, but verse 25 says that the apostles left there and they preached the gospel throughout the Samaritan villages as they made their way back to Jerusalem, celebrating the salvation of the people. They were to take the gospel to the world and they did. And King Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, tore down the walls and the hearts and he called his children home. Beloved, if we're not doing that in our lives, then I have to ask, why not? What is different outside of this being a monumental, historical, significant event? I get that. But what is different about us as followers of Jesus Christ? We should want to see any and all who will give a hearing to the gospel come running to Jesus for relief. We must get over ourselves if we are willing to let things stand in the way of that. No groups of people are excluded. Are we breaking down the walls that we have erected for reasons that are not supported in God's word? We better be. We should be. Because we too are witnesses to the glories of the gospel. We too have been entrusted with this treasure. Secondly, we see here that there are walls that God in his wisdom and in his power keeps in place. Like the one we see here with unbelief. Simon witnesses this whole scene. He's been following Philip all around Samaria, watching these shows of power through his preaching of the gospel and his working restoration to the brokenness that surrounds him. And certainly Simon was intrigued. He was paying attention. He was interested enough to even respond to the gospel and receive baptism itself. But when we find him here on this historic day in redemptive history, he opens his mouth and he's exposed as a fool. Look at verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given... He offered them money. Now please, understand, this is not Simon being so desperately sick over his sin that he's willing to give away his money to have some of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not what's going on here. This is not noble nor good. He's not seeking this even for others. This is Simon seeing the power of the Holy Spirit and saying, Hey, I could sell that all day long. I want to be a broker for that kind of power. He had witnessed the transformation of many who had received the Lord Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. He saw many Samaritans changed in mind and heart through Philip's proclamation of Jesus. He saw people at peace. Known sinners who were so transformed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ that they were no longer the same. But it was the power that he wanted. Not so that he could change lives, but so that he could amass more wealth, more influence, more fame. And look at how Peter responds to him, beginning in verse 20. This is weighty. The English doesn't do it justice. Peter says, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart be forgiven you. That's a weighty rebuke. Peter's having none of it. This is a day that any true student of the Word of God has been waiting a very long time for. You can imagine how it had to have opened even these apostles' eyes further to the wonderful grace of Almighty God. The nations will be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will be brothers and sisters in Christ. You notice there's no grumbling here with these apostles over the Samaritan Gentiles coming in. They are excited. They are rejoicing. And here is this former magician seeking an audience with Peter and John so he can make a business proposition with them. This power will sell. What Peter says here in truth is a bit crass for our sensitive ears, but I'm going to say it anyway because I always do. He says something to the effect of like, to hell with you and your money. That's what he's saying. It's a curse. Away with you and your unbelief. To destruction with you and your money and your unbelief. This wall is staying in place. The gospel does divide. It rightly separates the sheep from the goats. It moves one towards the saving arms of Jesus while it moves another even deeper into their sin and hatred for what God has said is good. Simon is exposed for following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And it is and indeed should be sobering, beloved, isn't it? Like most of this book, it should cause us to do some of that spiritual triage. Simony is the sin of attempting to buy powerful positions in the church, uh, noted specifically in history through in, in Roman Catholicism. It's named for Simon here in Acts. But are there other wrong reasons to follow Jesus? I'm asking you this morning, why do you follow Jesus? Is it because your people always have? That's not why you should follow Jesus Christ. Is it because it's part of the good family facade, a nice house on a nice tidy lawn, a couple of kids, members of a good church? That's not why you follow Jesus. Is it because you think somehow your being here makes God your debtor? That's not why you follow Jesus. It's not a good reason. Is it because you cannot imagine being lumped in with the bad people out there in our communities who have never even (coughs) dawned the door of a church? It's not a good reason to follow Jesus. Well, why then? Why should you follow Jesus Christ, the King? Why should Simon have followed? Because Jesus Christ is everything that you could ever need and so much more. He came down from his exalted place in heaven. He laid aside the glory that was his with his father. He condescended to us. He put on flesh. He kept every single line of the holy law of God in mind, word, and deed. He was perfect. And though he was declared innocent, he willingly walked to his death in our place and received upon himself the full penalty for our sin. The wrath of Almighty God poured out upon him in our place. He died. He rose again the third day, defeating forever sin, death, and the devil. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he now lives to make intercession for us, to sanctify what we say and think and do before the Father. Why should you follow this, Jesus? Because He in His mercy took your sin and nailed it with Him to the cross. And in return, He clothes you in His righteousness so that you are now an heir of eternal life and every blessing in Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you know that, why would you do anything other than follow him with your whole life? Following Jesus means knowing that you are the wretch that he died for. That's why you should follow him. And there's no greater reason, regardless of how good you may think it sounds, rejoice in Jesus Christ. Worship him. Exalt His holy name because He is the Savior of the world. He makes children of Abraham from children of Adam. Do you understand? And how do we know that He does this? Well, Finally, in closing this morning, beloved, you can see here clearly the kingdom marches on. It hardly needs any explanation, does it? Here in Acts, the promises of God continue to come to fruition. Many of the Jewish people hear the gospel and they run to Jesus and find life. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. They hear the gospel and they run to Jesus and find life. The apostles, Peter and John, leave this scene in Samaria with a hop in their step and they tell anyone and everyone about the gospel from Samaria to Jerusalem and the people run to Jesus and find life. Do you see the wonderful grace of God? The God that we serve here on display in this 8th chapter of Acts? It's mind-blowing. Satan raises opposition. And the gospel marches on, making converts in the most unlikely places. Praise God. He raises up a sorcerer to trick the people into thinking that there was other power that they needed. And the gospel strips him of his stage and converts many of those who had believed that maybe he was the answer to what ailed them. The kingdom marches on. It's no different today, beloved. I get tired of hearing Christians talk sort of in despair about this culture that we live in and how far we've slipped. Our culture embraces the very things that Scripture warns about, even forbids. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is still changing hearts, even in cultures that have rejected him. His kingdom marches on. Nothing is outside of his reach. Do you believe that this morning? Let me ask you, are you weighted down this morning over your own struggle with sin? Welcome to the group. Perhaps you think, if only they knew. If only they knew they would run me right out the doors of this place. It might be that my sin is just too big for Jesus. I can't seem to get any better. Listen to me this morning, beloved. Repent and run to Jesus for life. Peter, even in his anger toward Simon, offered Simon the opportunity to pray for forgiveness and receive the righteousness of Jesus that he so desperately needed. Your sin is not too big for him. He died for it. He satisfied the penalty even for your sin. Will you run to him? Look around you, beloved. Many are running to him. And the kingdom of God is marching on towards glory, and we get closer and closer every day. God is for you. And the gospel is the proof. Will you bend your knee for King Jesus? Beloved, I pray that all of us will. Amen.